Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today's paper is Learning to Generate Reviews and Discovering Sentiment by Alec Radford, Rafael Yosefovich, and Ilya Sedskover at OpenAI. This paper fits into a line of work on representation learning for uh, natural language text. And their contribution here is showing that character-level language models can learn interesting representations that are useful by themselves for some downstream tasks. And there are a lot of caveats to that claim, but that's their high-level point. And they showed this by taking a bunch of Amazon reviews, which you can imagine are, are generally pretty polarized. Some of them, some people really like the products that they review, some people really don't. And so if you want to build a language model that can predict the next word, it's pretty reasonable to think that the language model would have to encode something about the sentiment of the review in order to predict what's going to come next, if it should be, if it should be predicting positive words or negative words uh, or neutral words that, that are coming. And so they train a character-level language model for about a month and get a set of about 4,000 features out of this language model, or the language model in the end has 4,096 units. And then they use um, the representations that come out of the language model to predict sentiment uh, on a number of different data sets. And they find that uh, there's one particular neuron that when you're trying to classify sentiment of these reviews that encodes essentially just sentiment. You can use just this one neuron to get incredibly high accuracy on this task. And that if more generally you, you use a heavily regularized just simple model on top of uh, the features that you get out of this language model, you can get comparable performance to previous state-of-the-art methods with just a very small number of training examples, like dozens of training examples instead of thousands or tens of thousands, which is pretty impressive. Right, so that's a very general idea, and uh, it seems like uh, we can apply it in, in many other tasks. Um, are there any specifics about the language model or the way in which the use the features extract by language model that are important? Um, they, they do note that this is pretty domain dependent and that um, they tried to apply this same method, like the same language model to other data sets like movie reviews, I think, and the six semantic relatedness task and Microsoft paraphrase corpus and they didn't get nearly as good results. And they say that the reason for this is that uh, they literally just learned a language model on Amazon reviews. And so if you get words that are out of domain that you never really saw before in the Amazon reviews, the model just doesn't know what to do with the sentiment. And if you had learned the language model on in-domain data for those tasks, maybe you'd have done a whole lot better. So how do they make a prediction for um, predicting the sentiment analysis? Uh, honestly, this wasn't totally clear to me from the paper. I'm guessing. So they they have they say they may, they learn a classifier on top of the the hidden state of their language model, and the question is, do they take like which hidden state are they talking about? You're trying to classify either sentences or nodes in a parse tree or documents, and so what exactly you predict from is debatable, and. Um, like you, you could imagine if um, averaging the hidden state 
uh, over the entire input sequence, like for all of the characters in the sentence that you're trying to classify, average the hidden state, or you could just take the last one. Uh, I, there's one part at the end that makes me think maybe they just took the last one because they say they do worse on classifying longer documents because it's more biased towards the sentiment at the end of the document. Right. And so that probably means they're taking the final hidden state of whatever sequence they're trying to classify and then learning a simple classifier on top of that. Yeah, the paper also has very nice figures that show the sentiment at different uh, words um, in the sentence. Um, so this means they probably also, at least for qualitative evaluation, they also do this at every position in the sentence. Yeah, the they because they found a single neuron in the a single unit in this hidden state that tracks sentiment very well. You can do some really interesting uh, visualizations where for each character you color code it by the sentiment that that hidden state is showing. And so one example uh, is once in a while you may get amazed, and here it's green, and then over how bad a film can be, and it starts to go down. Uh, and how in the world anybody could raise money to make this kind of crap. There is absolutely no talent included in this film, and it here, at this point, it's very red, very um, negative sentiment being expressed, as you can tell. From a crappy script to a crappy story to crappy acting. Amazing. Dot, dot, dot. So the visualizations are pretty cool. Uh, you might want to take a look at that. So there are two main uh, ideas that I get from here. Uh, one, that we can use a language model in order to get very good uh, features for a downstream task. And the other is that we can use character level uh, information. Uh, so character level information is something that people <coughs> have used in many previous uh, papers. Uh, but oftentimes it's also augmented with word level information. So we have both a character level embedding and a word embedding. Um, I'm won I wonder if uh, they would get competitive performance on the other data sets if they also include the word embedding features. So that you could more easily handle out of domain kinds of things? Is that what you're thinking? Right, and uh, like if you have a training set for from the same domain, then you should be able to learn good representation for these words. Yeah, I think that that even gets at a deeper third aspect uh, of what's interesting about this work in that um, how do you incorporate features learned by some external feature extractor, like a language model, into a rich model for your own task? All they did was take the hidden state and learn a simple classifier on top of it. Your recent ACL paper, uh, does something a lot more interesting, where you take the features extracted from a language model and combine them uh, inside of an, of an LSTM or a, some other kind of deeper model that you use on the downstream task. So to back up a little bit, this paper, as I said at the beginning, fits into a line of work on unsupervised, or that's kind of a loaded word, but semi-supervised kinds of representations uh, to e extract features from natural language te text. There's this skip thought vectors paper from a couple of years ago um, that was probably one of the first to do this, aside from uh, simple word embeddings, where you take, uh, you try to embed larger structures and get feature extract feature representations from larger structures that you can use in downstream tasks. Um, there was a paper posted on Archive yesterday about supervised learning of universal sentence representations from natural language inference data. 
I haven't read it yet, but it, it's definitely in this line of work. But a lot of people are thinking about how do we do representation learning on top of text sequences, and your ACL paper also fits into this line of work. Uh, do you want to give us a two-second pitch on what this paper does? Sure. Uh, so the main idea in the ACL paper that uh, Matt Peters, I, and Chandra and Russell wrote um, was to really focusing on the first uh, part that this paper is talking about, which is doing language model uh, model transfer. Um, so we know how to train language models on very large amounts of data. Uh, this not only gives us good representations for individual words, but also words in context. Uh, so unlike word embeddings that people often use, which are um, they have the same embedding, or words have the same embedding regardless of where they sit in the in the context. In a language model, uh, you can actually have an embedding or a representation of every word uh, within that context, within a particular context. And we have plenty of data to learn the parameters of the function that uh, combines this representation for different words uh, in the context and get a context uh, sensitive representation. So the idea is to use this uh, model, which we know how to train, um, and also some pre-trained um, models already are available we can use it for downstream tasks in structure prediction problems. Um, so we, we do this for limited recognition and uh, NP chunking, and it, it shows that we can outperform a very strong baseline and achieve uh, a new state of the art in both data sets um, by, by adding this uh, signal. And the key difference between your work and this work, it seems to me, is that you have richer models on top of the language model input so that you can do kind of like a feature adaptation kind of thing. The language model gives you some features, and then you have an interesting complex model that can learn how to use those features given your supervised signal. Right. I think it, uh, it is important uh, to start with a, with a strong uh, model and not completely rely on the language model uh, to give us all, all the features that we need. Yeah, I think that's where you run into these out-of-domain issues more strongly because your language model is trained on a particular data set on a particular objective, and so it's not reasonable to assume that it will learn everything that it needs to for whatever task you want. But it probably also learns good representations of language that will be useful if you can use them in some other model. Yeah, exactly, and especially if your training data doesn't match uh, the same domain as the test data or what you want to use a model for, uh, I imagine the language model would be very, very useful there. Yeah. One other point about this paper, uh, their language model is not deep. It's a single layer multiplicative LSTM. Uh, I wondered how much better you could do if you have a, some kind of deep model. Like, I don't know, I think of ImageNet and VGG and these models that people use for image classification and other vision tasks where you have this really deep model that you train for a long time on some large data set and then you can just pull that out and use it uh, use various parts of it for other downstream tasks. And we don't have that so much in language, and this is this language modeling stuff is about as close as we can get, it seems, except the models that we use are all really shallow. And I don't know, I wonder why, but I guess this in this paper they say that their language model took a month to train, so I guess it's not too surprising that they didn't go deeper. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, um, if you have the computational ability to uh, to do more deeper, I think that's fair. But training language models is a pain uh, in that sense. Interesting. Okay, I think that's it for this paper.
Right, thanks for discussing this paper, Matt. Uh, next time we are going to discuss a paper titled A Syntactic Neural Model for General Purpose Code Generation, written by Ping Cheng Yin and Graham Newbig.